This is a podcast about Jeopardy. Hello and welcome to Potent Potables, your weekly Jeopardy podcast where two former competitors bring you recaps and analysis of the week's Jeopardy episodes, a deep dive into a topic inspired by one of those episodes, and a quiz. I'm Emily. And I'm Kyle. And this is the week of February 8th, 2021. And on Monday, we have the contestants Michael White, a marketing professional from Mission Viejo, California. John Folkt, a software team lead originally from El Paso, Texas. And Leah Wiegand, a stay-at-home mom originally from Asheville, North Carolina, whose one-day cash winnings total $17,000. And we have the Jeopardy round categories, the B blank G's, words beginning with B and ending in G, How Deep Is Your Love, Facts and Figures, States by National Forest, Literary Illusions, and Technology. And this whole week, uh, they have had video categories, partnering with Olay, bringing attention to the gender gap in STEM fields, which are science, tech, engineering, and math. Uh, And each day has a different notable Mm -hmm. woman in a STEM field presenting the clues. Mm -hmm. I liked seeing the the STEM categories Mm -hmm. throughout the week. Although I will say many of the guest presenters presented very much like people who are in STEM rather than people who are in show business. Right. <laughs> I had that same thought, but also like, it's cool for them. Yeah, no, like, it was it was excellent. And Girls Who Code does some really cool work. Mm-hmm. That's the organization that was represented on Monday. I'm sure the other organizations and uh, entities also do cool work, but I know a little bit about Girls Who Code. We had a miss and a rebound in facts and figures at 800 The clue there was a leading organization against this activity says the average driver does it 80 times before being arrested for the first time. Uh, Michael guessed what is speeding, probably at least 80 times for speeding. I would think so. Probably more. John got the rebound with drunk driving. I can't. I imagine that might be like Mothers Against Drunk Driving is the organization that comes to mind. Man, I can't even imagine 80 times. I know. I was floored. Yeah. My first thought was texting while driving, which is, I believe, not safer than drunk driving. I mean, um, pro- so, probably not. <laughs> so put your phones away, y'all. Yeah, but drunk driving is the correct response there. Daily Double number one comes up in the literary illusions category at the $1,000 level. It's the very last pick of the round, clue number 30, and... John finds it. At this point, he's in a solid lead with 9,400 to Michael's 3,600 and Leah's 2,600, and he wagers 3,000 of that. In my opinion, even more would have been a fine call. Mm-hmm. But 3,000, it's a, it's a good size wager, and he gets the clue. The contradictory thought that some are more equal than others comes from a slogan in a satire by this man, and he correctly responds, who is George Orwell? And that's in Animal Farm. Yes. I really enjoyed Animal Farm. Yeah. I should go back to it. It was it was something that I read like kind of fairly early after switching from reading only like children's and young adult literature to reading like real books that were not <laughs> books for children are real books. Um, but you know, books that were not intended primarily for a young audience. Mm -hmm. Um, I bet that I would get a lot more out of it as an adult. 
than as a 14-year-old. Yeah. I don't remember when I actually read it. I just remember that I really, really liked it. Yeah, I liked it too. Mm -hmm. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, John is in the lead with 12,400. Michael and Leah are still at 3,600 and 2,600 respectively. And we have the double Jeopardy categories. Take them to their royal houses, classical music titles, people and places, female first names, non-vocabulary, and before and after goes to the movies. And uh, non-vocabulary turned out to be vocabulary words that had the syllable non in them Mm -hmm. or were related to something that had non in it. So uh, non-invasive medical procedures include CT scans, x-rays, and this type of 3D diagnostic viewing that earned a 2003 Nobel Prize. So that one, the correct response is MRI. It doesn't have a non in it. The non is in non-invasive medical procedures. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sometimes with a category like that, it can be tricky to kind of keep track of whether the gimmick has already come up in the clue or whether it needs to tie in to the response. Right. Yeah, but they did a good job. They got all of them on the first try, I believe. They did. Before and after goes to the movies. It was fun. Uh, mm-hmm. It was it was harder than I, I thought it would be. But they did well with it, too. And uh, the $2,000 clue, I think, was pretty fun. Uh, a 2014 movie with Peter Quill and his pals meets up with Tim Allen and his sci-fi TV cast to be a film we'd very much like to see. That's Guardians of the Galaxy Quest. They're going to have to make it. They're, I also want to see it. I mean, it would be kind of hard to make it because you'd need Alan Rickman. But mm. I mean, yes. I'm sure we could find. I'm sure Benedict Cumberbatch would be willing to step in because mm. apparently he'll, he'll do anything. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think he I think I think he could fill that role oh yeah I no i could. should say he's willing to do anything and do a good job at it yeah no i think yeah. i think he'd be solid i was yeah. just thinking no i'm sorry like it, the, the, it's impossible we can't have alan rickman so you know mm-hmm. I, I, I it can't be done and then you said benedict cumberbatch and i think that would work i think it'd be okay wouldn't yeah. be the same but yep that's okay we get daily double number two in the people and places category It's at the $1,200 level. It's pick number 17. John finds this one as well. He is up to 18,400. Leah is at 6,200. Michael's at 8,400. He wagers another 4,000. And he gets the clue. It's the French word for an inhabitant of Canada's largest province by area. And he gets it right with what is Quebecois? Alex would be proud. Mm -hmm. Actually, I mean, I mean, I, I think Alex would expect us all to know that. I think he would, yeah. Yeah. And then Daily Double number two comes up at the $1,200 level of Take Them to Their Royal Houses, where we've already had the Romanoffs and the Tudors. Mm-hmm. I feel like there are only so many royal houses anyone, that Jeopardy would expect anyone to know. Right. So with a category like that, I kind of try and keep track of what we've already seen. Michael finds this one as the 21st pick, and he wagers 5000 of his 7600 John's up at 24,000 at this point. So this will put Michael just barely back into contention. And Leah's at 6,200. And the clue is Empress Maria Theresa and Emperor Franz Joseph. And he correctly responds, who are the Habsburgs? Mm -hmm. 
the other two in that category were Louis the Fourteenth. That's the House of Bourbon, mm-hmm. uh, and then the Crown Prince, known as MBS, the House of Saud, which John got. Yeah, John did very well this game. <laughs> I mean, he did well in most of his games. I guess yeah. spoiler alert, but uh, yeah, he did extremely well. Mm-hmm. At the end of the double jeopardy round. John has a lock game at 32,400. Michael is in second at 12,200, and Leah is at 6,200. Then we get the final Jeopardy category, World Literature. And the clue, in a classic novel from 1866, the murders of two women take place in this city. This ended up being a triple stumper. Mm-hmm. Leah wagered 6,200, everything, and wrote What is London? Uh, that is incorrect. Michael wagered 201 to make a cover bet over Leah. Uh, and he wrote, what is London? Crossed it out and put Moscow. Uh, that's also incorrect. And John wagered 7,600, not risking his luck, and wrote, what is Paris? Uh, but that is St. Petersburg uh, mm-hmm. from Crime and Punishment. It seemed to me, I mean, once I, once they revealed that they were thinking of Crime and Punishment, I see it. It seems to me that although I don't have a specific example of something else that could fulfill this clue, it may not be completely pinned. You need a novel that someone would call a classic that is published in 1866, where two women are murdered in the same city. And if you can find a novel that satisfies that, then whatever city you come up with would work. Right. Yeah, and not even, yeah, whatever city, yeah. I I had the same feeling. I was like, this is extremely vague. And I imagine they did some research to, like, check other novels written in 1866, but that, I don't know. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it, did, it was not pinned. Mm-hmm. I agree. It may not have been. I mean, maybe, maybe no novel with murders of two women has, from 1866, is considered you know, classic or right, you know, kind of survived to this. Yeah. Or whatever. But it, it, it felt a little sketchy to me. It felt like they needed some proper noun, maybe a name to pin it a little better. Right. Yeah. Cause there are a lot of murders in those 19th century novels. There are a lot of murders in a lot of stories. Yeah. Good on Michael for at least making it to Russia. Yeah. Um, yeah. So on Tuesday we have the contestants, miles Nye a game designer from Berkeley, California, Morgan Halverson, a news editor from Silver Spring, Maryland, and John Folk, a software team lead originally from El Paso, Texas, whose one-day cash winnings total $24,800. And we have the Jeopardy round categories nonfiction, countries translated names, six-letter words, potpourri, squid pro quo, and... It's in the sport, in in quotation marks. We get another instance of potpourri. How many potpourris have there been in the last year? <laughs> They're just fe- messing with you. <laughs> I feel like more than usual. <laughs> I think more than usual, yeah. Uh, I know, since, I see you writers. Since the time that you said potpourri as a category was retired, it's come up pretty yes, regularly. They have, they have made it their mission to prove unequivocally that it is not. That squid category was fun. I don't, It just... <laughs> It's nice to see a a different kind of like uniting factor for a category than mm-hmm. typical, you know, like countries translated names. It's just, you know, geography and words and nonfiction writing. And it's like squid stuff. Mm-hmm. Or I guess tangentially squid stuff. 
Yeah, they they managed to get a whole bunch of kind of domains of knowledge in there. There was food, there was music, there was TV, there was literature, mm-hmm. and there was philosophy. Indeed, there was. <laughs> yeah. In the country's translated names category at the $1,000 level, Bright Stone in Europe. Mm-hmm. Miles got that one. It's Liechtenstein. I, for whatever reason, was like, oh, Lithuania, Lith stone and and i i don't think that's the etymology of lithuania but i think i, I went for i don't know if it was intended as an egg bait but hmm. i uh, yeah. fell into that trap totally could see that miles was kind of fun i'm remembering now giving some mm-hmm. of his uh some of his responses with a little dramatic flair yeah he 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 had a performative stance mm-hmm. it was, it was yeah fun. yeah Miles finds the first Daily Double. It's in the nonfiction category. It's at the $600 level. He is at $3,800, just ahead of John's $3,400 and Morgan's $1,800. And he wagers only $800. And he gets the clue. Looking for her chronicles many who have held the title, like Yolanda Betbizi, who refused to model swimsuits. And I'm sorry if I got that name wrong. That's Miss America, and Miles got it right. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the Jeopardy round... John is in the lead at 6,400. Morgan is at 4,000, and Miles is at 4,600. And the Double Jeopardy round categories are TV shows by workplace, historical pairs, month of the book, ends with TH, or TH, <laughs> uh, <laughs> banks for the memories, and engineering. This is another category presented in partnership with Olay for uh, the gender gap in STEM. Featuring engineer Erica Joy Baker. Mm-hmm. I only caught it, I think, on the last few. But the in the category ends with th. They they said the, like they called that the category. The contestants did. Yeah. No. I think I think they might have done it the whole way through. Mm-hmm. Miles started asking for ends with th or th, and then he continued asking for, and yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was fun. I like yeah. That. Yeah, it was it was cute. We had a triple stumper at the in the top level in TV shows by workplace. Uh, the clue was Pritchett's closets and blinds, and I didn't know that one, and neither did the contestants. Uh, the correct response there is Modern Family, which I know is a good show and people like it. I just haven't gotten around to it yet. Yeah. To me, I would think that maybe the twelve hundred Sterling Cooper Draper Price. Fe- it feels easier. Because I feel like I knew that or would have been able to match it to the correct show, even if I couldn't produce the name of the firm um, before I ever started watching Mad Men, right? It's a show Mm -hmm. about people who work at Sterling Cooper, Draper Price, Mm -hmm. or Sterling Cooper when the show starts. Sure. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I felt like the order was a little off. I thought Central Perk should definitely have been the $400 clue, Mm -hmm. Uh, but they did fine with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They struggled a little in the month of the book category. Also, uh, they got Stephen Ambrose's D-Day, blank 6, 1944, the climactic battle of World War II. That's June 6. They got the hunt for red October. They got Elizabeth von Arnhem's The Enchanted April. But nobody knew uh, Nebel and Bailey's political thriller Seven Days in Blank. That is May, and I just guessed on how to pronounce that first guy's name, so hopefully that was correct. Sure. And nobody knew Saul Bellows' The Adventures of Augie March, mm-hmm. 
which I haven't read. I just happened to know the title. Um, John Guest August, which would have been a funny title, The Adventures of Augie August, August. right? Like (laughs) Daily Double number two comes up really early. Third pick of the round in historical pairs at the $1,200 level, and John finds it. He wagers 3,000 of his 7,600. Morgan has 4,000. Miles has 4,600. And he gets the clue. During National Surveyors Week, March 21 to 27, 2021, think about members of the profession like this 18th century line pair. Line is in quotation marks here, uh, and that probably helps him out a little bit. And he correctly responds, who are Mason and Dixon? Yep. And daily double number three is at pick number 23. It's in the banks for the memories category. Also at the $1,200 level, also found by John. Uh, he is at 11400 Morgan has made uh, a really good move. She She's kind of gone on a tear. She's up to 14800 And Miles is back at 6200 John wagers 3000 which would not put him into the lead at that point. I would have bet a little more. And he gets the clue. A national bank organized in 1877 was named for this ex-treasury secretary with a fishy first name. And he gets it correct with who is Salmon Chase. Mm-hmm. And then in those last few clues before the round closes out, he manages to take the lead. So at the end of the double jeopardy round, John is at 18,400. Morgan's at 16,800, and Miles is at 5,400, and we have the final Jeopardy category, the 50 states. And the clue, while it has only 31 miles of coastline on the Atlantic, its shoreline is almost 3,200 miles, thanks to a large estuary and its tributaries. Miles has wagered 5,333, oh, but $67. He responds, what is North Carolina? Not a bad guess, but incorrect. Morgan has wagered 1801. Not sure what the thought process is there exactly. Maybe just looking to get above John's zero, but maybe an arithmetic error. Um, Because that gets her about $201 above John's zero. Uh, And she correctly responds, what is Maryland? Chesapeake Bay, Ken Notes has all the little wiggly parts of the shoreline along it. But John has it correct as well. What is Maryland? And he bets 15,600. So with 34,000 for the game, he is our champion going into Wednesday. And on Wednesday, we have the contestants Jared Wilkie, a teacher from Half Moon Bay, California, Tiffany Seitler, a finance manager originally from Garfield, New Jersey. And John Folkt, a software team lead originally from El Paso, Texas, whose two-day cash winnings total $58,800. And we have the Jeopardy round categories. Paid by the Word, Legal Edition. History Quick Shots. Let's Dance. Croatia. What Does Not Kill Us and Makes Us Stronger. I like that What Did Not What Does Not Kill Us category. Mm, yes. Agreed. And um, our friend Benedict Cumberbatch comes up here at the $400 level as this title, BBC Sleuth, Benedict Cumberbatch appeared to leap to his death, but it was not his last bow. And that is Sherlock Holmes. Mm -hmm. We talk about him a lot around here. We do. We do. It comes up quite a bit. We had a a neg bait trap, I guess, in the uh, 
history quick shots category at the $800 level. This Windy City lawyer went to Tennessee in 1925 to defend a teacher. Tiffany rang in and guessed, who is Scopes? Thinking of the correct trial, uh, John got it with, who is Darrow? Yeah, mm-hmm. Clarence Darrow is the, the attorney. Scopes right, was Scopes the is the guy who, yeah, the teacher who was on trial. Yeah. We had an incorrect response at the $800 level of the Let's Dance category. The clue there in ballet, a grand this French term is a full bending of the knees until the thighs are horizontal. A demi one is half bending. John guesses what is jeté. Uh, the correct answer there, Tiffany gets it, is plié. A grand jeté is also a ballet thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so probably that is what John was thinking of, you know. Sure. Um, but yeah, a grand plié is a uh, is also a thing. Yeah. The jeté is more of a jump. Yeah, it's like a leap. Mm-hmm. Daily double number one comes up at the $800 level of Croatia. John finds this one and wagers 2500 of his 3200 Tiffany's at 800 at this point and Jared has 1400 And John gets the clue. The coastal cities of Pula and Zadar overlook this sea, an arm of the Mediterranean. And he correctly responds, what is the Adriatic? Mm-hmm. John actually ran the Croatia category. Oh, you're right. He did. Did they acknowledge him for that? Or I don't, I don't think, think they so. did. Yeah. Yeah. Good on John. I saw it come out and I thought, oh, no, you know, I know maybe one thing about Croatia, but they did make a number of these approachable without a lot of knowledge about Croatia. Yeah, I agree. All I remembered was that the capital is Zagreb. So that that came up. Mm-hmm. But we also had a fun Wheel of Fortune joke at the $600 level. Uh, many visitors to the island of Kirk, K-R-K, have been inspired to utter this Wheel of Fortune catchphrase. And uh, John got, well, of course, John got that one correct. He ran the category. Uh, the correct response there is, can I buy a vowel? Mm-hmm. Which yeah. Ken made a joke about being able mm-hmm. to say it on this stage. Yeah, normally you say that like over on the... I don't actually know where the Wheel of Fortune studio is relative to the Jeopardy studio, but like same building, right? Uh, or is it like across the way? It's across the way. You you go through an alleyway. Yeah. Or whatever you'd call it on a studio. Oh, you have like firsthand. Do you have firsthand experience yeah. of that? Yeah. Yeah. We did interviews there during the mm-hmm. Tournament of Champions. Yeah. Nice. All right. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, John has 8,700. Tiffany's at 3,200. Jared is at 2,400. And we have the categories public sculpture, synonym roles, three named authors, government and politics, four letter F words, which seems like a risque title for the Jeopardy writers. I wonder if they're having a little fun with us. And math in the world. Uh, This one is a video category presented by the founder of the Algorithmic Justice League, which I don't know what that is, but the name is awesome. It sounds really sweet. Doesn't it? Yeah. Oh, this is super cool. The Algorithmic Justice League aims to raise awareness of the social implications of artificial intelligence through art and research. It was featured in the 2020 documentary Coded Bias. Um, And on their front page, artificial intelligence can amplify racism, sexism, and other forms of discrimination. We deserve more accountable and equitable AI. I like that. Yeah, that's awesome. That sounds that sounds that's fascinating. Cool. Uh, despite Emily's concerns, 
the four letter F words was not really all that, you know, like exciting, frankly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they were pretty straightforward. We did get fiat, which is a word I love. Mm-hmm. Any decree or an automaker that originated in Turin. It's fiat. Yep. In that math in the world category at the $1,600 level, I thought this was especially interesting. Intersectional analysis is a way to evaluate how multiple variables influence the accuracy of this surveillance technology I have shown to struggle on darker faces. Um, So that was Joy Buolamwini, uh, I believe is how Ken said her name, although I could have made a mistake there, talking about her own research. um, Mm -hmm. And the correct response there is facial recognition. Facial recognition works better for white people than for people of color. I mean, but that's really the only thing that works better, right? (laughs) You would be surprised. (laughs) Um, Actually, you probably wouldn't. Some people would, though. Yeah. Daily Double number two is in the three named authors category at the $1,600 level. Jared finds it. He is at $8,000. John is at 10,300, Tiffany is at 5,200, and he wagers 5,000, which is a good move. Uh, He gets the clue, Simon & Schuster sponsors an award for suspense fiction named for this female author of A Stranger is Watching. And he doesn't offer a response, uh, but that is Mary Higgins Clark. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which is a name that I can never remember. I would have also drawn a blank there. Mm-hmm. And then Ken said yep. it, and I was like, well, duh, yes, of course I of course I know who that is. Yeah. Yeah, as soon as he said the name, I was like, oh, right, yes, her. Um, she's like the the one I can't keep track of. <laughs> yeah, which is weird. Like, cause, like I mean, the one who's a- not Ivanovich. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. And Daily Double number three is in the public sculpture category at the $1,600 level also. John finds this one and wagers 2,000 of his 19,100. Tiffany's at 8,400 and Jared is at 5,800. And he gets the clue. A statue of this brewer was unveiled in 2013 in Selbridge, Ireland, near where he was born around 1725. And he correctly responds, who is Guinness? Mm -hmm. Yes, Guinness holds a special place in my heart. Two reasons. One, it was the first beer that I legally ordered. At the mm-hmm. age of 21. Very nice. And it was also the first correct response that I gave on Jeopardy, I believe. Oh, nice. <laughs> After I had dug myself into a hole. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, anyway. The Guinness Factory in Dublin is a pretty fun tour. And um, you can go to the tap room and they will teach you how to correctly pull a pint of Guinness and then give you a little certificate. So that's fun if you're ever in Ireland. Nice. I would definitely do that. Yeah, it was a a good time. Uh, So at the end of the double Jeopardy round, John has another lock game at 21,900. Tiffany is at 8,000. Jared's at 5,800. And the final Jeopardy category is historic namesakes. And the clue is this aircraft was named for the second president of the Weimar Republic, or Weimar Republic, depending on how you want to pronounce it. Uh, Jared wagered 2201 and wrote, what is the plane? Mm. Not correct, but fun. Uh, Tiffany wagered 7900 and wrote, what is the Valheim? 
but that was also incorrect. John wagered 3,100, and he got it correct with what is the Hindenburg? Mm-hmm. Oh, the yep. humanity. Yes. Good job there. So on Thursday, we have the contestants Stan Park, a virtual events producer from Oakland, California. I guess it's a good time to be a virtual events producer. Right. Um, <laughs> Those are the only kind of events right now. Yeah. Kate Wilcox, an attorney originally from Miamisburg, Ohio, and John Folkt, a software team lead originally from El Paso, Texas, whose three-day cash winnings total $83,800. And we have the Jeopardy round categories. What happens in Chapter 1? 1930s America. Beverages. Superstition. TV. And animals in German. Yeah. We love when they do animals in German. <laughs> or really just anything in German. German words are so fun. German words are great. I really liked that what happens in chapter one uh, category. Mm, yeah. It was, a, it was a fun way to approach another literature category. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Don't think I've read any of these. No, I have read 100 Years of Solitude. Yeah, no, it was a it was a fun way in. Um, uh, e- each clue brought in, you know, a couple of character names, maybe a setting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so like at the four hundred dollar level, an Oklahoma opening dust obscures the stars and the corn. It ain't growing well. The men sat still, thinking, figuring, um, and that is the grapes of wrath. John got that one. Yep, indeed. Back over in the animals in German. Uh, we had a triple stumper at the $600 level. Uh, we learned that this large amphibious mammal is Nilpferd. That's a hippo. Nilpferd. Yeah. What a good what a good word. Yeah, it is. I wonder if it's a compound word that means anything fun. Probably, because they're all well, they're all compound words. It means Nile horse. Yes. Oh, that's so good. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. I love German. <laughs> um, uh, so nice. Yeah. <laughs> Daily Double number one is at pick number 29. Very late. It's the $400 clue in 1930s America. Kate finds it. She is in the lead at 4400 John is at 3800 and Stan is at 2800 And she wagers 1600 Gets the clue... Accepting the Democratic nomination in 1932, FDR said, I pledge you, I pledge myself to this for the American people. And she gets that correct with a new deal. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the Jeopardy round, John is at 3,800, Kate is up at 6,000, and Stan is at 3,000. And the double Jeopardy categories are suburbs, the same vowel front and back, just us mythical folks, U.S. in quotation marks. Maritime Disasters, the title Instrument, and STEM, which uh, is the another uh, STEM video category, <clears throat> this time presented by Procter & Gamble's principal scientist, Dr. Frauke Neuser. Mm-hmm. We get the Daily Double as the very first pick of the round, um, which means that it goes to Stan, and it's at the $800 level of the same vowel front and back. He wagers three thousand. Uh, it's a true daily double, um, looking to get into a tie for the lead, and he gets the clue to overshadow metaphorically or celestially, and he correctly responds, "What is eclipse?" Mm-hmm. Um, I would say if you if you hit the daily double on 
clue number one of double jeopardy treat that like you've hit a daily double in the jeopardy round yeah uh, just, which is what he does yeah, yeah just, just go for it all there's yeah. no yeah no difference at all there they had some trouble in the maritime disasters category three triple stumpers the the three higher level clues 1200 was once the largest ship on the Great Lakes. The Edmund Fitzgerald sank in this Great Lake during a 1975 storm. Uh, Kate guessed what is eerie, but that is superior. The 1600 was in 2012. The cruise ship called the Costa This ran aground off the Italian coast with the captain abandoning the ship. And they showed a picture of the Costa Concordia, which I'd totally forgotten about. Yeah. I remember at the time it was like a, you know, a big deal. Yeah, I feel like there's been so much bad stuff with cruise ships, most of which is not them sinking, you know, most of which right. is like plague and right, right. Yeah. like like failures of, of sanitary facilities mm-hmm. um, yeah. uh, that I, I'd forgotten about this one. Right. And then the 2000 was named for an Italian admiral. This luxury liner famously sank after a collision in 1956. Uh, that's the Andrea Doria. I learned what that was just now. So Yep, me too. Daily Double number three uh, is earlier in the round. It's pick number nine in the Just Us Mythical Folks category at the $1,600 level. John finds it. He's probably probably hurting a little bit because he hadn't gotten a Daily Double in this game yet, and he usually finds them. Uh, he was at 3800 Kate was up at 8800 and Stan was at 8400 and he bet it all, as well he should at that point. Mm-hmm. Epimetheus gave the animals gifts like speed, strength, and razor-sharp claws, leaving this brother with not much to give to humans. Uh, and John gets it with who is Prometheus? Mm-hmm. I wouldn't call fire not much. I feel like that's been pretty significant yeah. for humanity. Yeah. I would. I would agree. Perhaps essential. <laughs> mm-hmm. So at the end of the double Jeopardy round, Stan is in the lead with 16,400. Kate has 9,600. John is at 13,600. And we have the final Jeopardy category, the Oscars. And the clue, the first time an individual won four awards at a single ceremony was in 1954, when his wins included best two real short subject. Kate wagered all but 100 but responded, who is Herzog? Uh, that's incorrect. So she drops down. John, who is coming into this from the second place position, correctly responds, who is Walt Disney? And he's wagered 6,400. He likes to head for those round numbers. So this lands him at 20,000. And then Stan has made a cover bet of 10,801. But he has responded, who is Orson Welles? Not Bad guess, although I don't think the dates quite line up. Mm-hmm. So he drops down and John squeaks out a win from second place. So he is up to four games going into mm-hmm. Friday. And on Friday, we have the contestants Lance St. Laurent, a PhD student from Madison, Wisconsin, Alejandra Oliva, a communications coordinator from Chicago, Illinois, and John Folkt, a software team lead originally from El Paso, Texas, who is now up to $103,800. And we get the Jeopardy round categories Mecca and Medina, Fruit Forward, Describing the Adjective, Game Theory, 
Best Actress Oscar winning roles and Science, which is the last of our video categories. Uh, this time featuring Procter and Gamble's molecular biologist, Dr. Marquisa Black. And in that science category, we had a clue about something that was in one of our quizzes just a couple mm-hmm. of weeks ago, a few weeks ago. At the $1,000 level, in 2020, for the first time ever, the Nobel Prize in Chemistry was won by two women, Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel Charpentier, for their work on the revolutionary gene editing tool known by this acronym. And Lance knew that. Kyle knew it a few weeks ago. That is CRISPR. That's right. Yeah. I didn't realize that Supernatural stayed on TV for so long. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 15 years on the air for Supernatural. Um, That was in the describing the adjective category at the $600 level. Paranormal or a TV show that aired its finale in 2020 after 15 years on the air. Mm -hmm. That's Supernatural. I I, I don't know. I, I, I knew people who were really into it like in like 2010. And I sort of lost track of it after that. I didn't realize it was still on. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So Daily Double, number one, comes up in the game theory category, which focused on winning strategies for particular games, not on, like, the field of game theory, per se. Right. Um, Which, fair enough, you know, but you don't need to know John Nash for the game theory category. That's right. Yeah, that last week. (laughs) Yes. So uh, the Daily Double comes up as the fifth pick at the $800 level. And John finds it. He has 800 at this point. To Lance's 600, Alejandra is not on the board yet. And he wagers the maximum in this situation, which is 1,000, and gets the clue. If you win, switch to whatever would have beaten you for the next round, says a 2014 study on the psychology of this game. And he just kind of keys into the wrong parts of this clue and makes it a little more complicated than it needs to be. He responds, what is let's make a deal? The correct answer here is rock, paper, scissors. So he's thinking of the Monty Hall problem, which is a really fun, interesting problem. The answer is you should switch. I could explain why, but then this would be a different kind of podcast. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I think he... uh, he focuses in on, like, you should switch. And he's like, that's the Monty Hall problem, you know. But no, it's uh, it's a little easier than that. Um, psychology maybe would have clued him in. Like, if he focused on the word psychology, that might have given him a hint that he was heading in the wrong direction. Anyway, I could see exactly how he got to let's make a deal. Right. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Lance is in the lead with 7,600. John has made it out of the hole and up to 5,600. Alejandra's at 2,000. And we have the double Jeopardy categories after the Supreme Court. Symbols. All the rage, rage in quotation marks. In concert. Valley and girl. Which turned out to be all girls in books. We had a triple stumper in the Valley category at the $800 level. In 452, these feared invaders from Central Asia stormed into Italy, devastating the Po Valley. Uh, Lance guessed who were the Mongols, which, to my knowledge, are the only ones that were actually guessed that came from Central Asia. John guessed who were the Lombards, 
Uh, that's incorrect. Alejandra guessed who are the Goths, uh, but that was the Huns. Yeah, Huns. Mm-hmm. I also thought of the Mongols. There's a running gag in the Crash Course World History series about the Mongols, and so they come to mind a little too readily for me. Uh, although that that series on YouTube is very fun. That whole Crash Course channel, I like it. I think it is intended mostly for high schoolers, but you know, sometimes I just I just go on there, I play a video, I learn something. Uh, Daily Double number two is in the symbols category. At the $1,200 level, uh, Alejandra finds it. She's at $6,400, John's at $9,200, and Lance is up at $12,000. She wagers $3,000 and gets the clue this flower represents autumn and is an emblem of the imperial family of Japan. And she gets it correct with what is the chrysanthemum. Mm-hmm. I feel like maybe there was a like a final Jeopardy clue or a daily double about the book The Chrysanthemum and the Sword. A while back? Uh, uh, possibly, yeah, yeah, yeah. That felt kind of familiar. Um, yeah. And Daily Double number three is the 24th pick at the $1,600 level of the in-concert category. And Lance finds this one. At this point, he's in the lead with 17200 John has 14000 and Alejandra has 11400 Uh Lance tries to extend his lead with a $4,000 wager, and he gets the clue recorded for live albums. Johnny Cash performed legendary concerts at Folsom Prison and this other California one. Lance gets that one correct uh, with what is San Quentin, um, which came up in Learned League maybe like... It was pre-pandemic. Yeah, it was it was a little while ago. Yeah, but. it was a while ago. The podcast Ear Hustle is recorded at San Quentin. Hmm. That's worth checking out if anybody wants to listen to a podcast made by incarcerated people. Um, Interesting. Yeah, in partnership with people who you know have like radio backgrounds and and whatnot. But I think the I think the um, the inmates of San Quentin really take the lead, and it's interesting stuff. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lance also ran this in concert category, which was also not pointed out. I don't know if, if, if just uh, they're not doing it without a live audience there or what, but... Yeah. Yeah. He also ran this one, so... Uh, coming into Final Jeopardy, he is in a big lead at 24,800. John is at 16,000, and Alejandra is at 10,600. These are very good scores. Yes. Extremely good scores. Mm-hmm. And we got the Final Jeopardy category, Ancient Greek Philosophers. And the clue is asked to describe this 4th century BC member of the Cynics. Plato called him, quote, a Socrates gone mad. Alejandro wagered 10,000 and wrote, who is Zeno? That is incorrect. John wagered 9,000 and wrote, who is Pythagoras? Which is kind of where my, my mind went, um, but that is also incorrect. Lance wrote or wagered 5,200 and wrote, who is Aristotle? That is also incorrect. They were looking for Diogenes. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe maybe ancient Greek philosophers is just a blind spot for me, but this seems... Much more difficult than other Final Jeopardies <laughs> recently. Yeah, seems like one of one of the one of the deeper pulls you'd need for. Yeah, this this was it felt obscure to me. Yeah, worth noting that uh, Lance did not make a cover bet. 
here. Yeah. He headed for 30,000, but John could have gotten up to 32,000 conceivably. Um, And Lance doesn't really lose anything by making a cover bet. Yeah. A cover bet here would have been 7,200. If he'd missed it, he would have dropped down. But he still... Yeah. Yeah. He'd have been in reach of John and Alejandra either way. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, So it worked out fine for him, Mm. but non-optimal strategically but yeah how would how are people expected to know diogenes are you just really expected to know your greek philosophy is there a connection there that i'm missing i mean you'd have to know that he's just like probably the well-known cynic yeah if you know your schools of greek philosophy Mm -hmm. i mean you know it's trivia anything is fair game it just it felt like yeah it felt more obscure than most recently so Mm mm-hmm yeah, but Lance, uh, you know, put on a strong show and uh, had a, had a, a way about him of being very uh, comfortable on stage. So mm-hmm. we will see more of that next week. Yes, yes, indeed. Uh, so this is the time of the show where we uh, take a pause and talk to you a little bit. Um, normally, you know, we, we mentioned we have a Patreon. It's Patreon.com/slash/PotentPotables. You can check that out if you'd like to. Uh, and normally we like to point you in uh, a direction of like supporting local or uh, nationwide social justice movements. But today we're going to take a, a little bit of a more uh, close to home, I guess, for the Jeopardy community moment. We are recording this on Friday the 12th, and uh, just today uh, it was uh, announced that Braden Smith, a five-time champion the last one of the who was with Alex Trebek suddenly passed away this week mm-hmm. and we do not know the cause we don't need to uh, obviously this is a pretty big hit for the Jeopardy community um, as we you know we watch and especially the the contestants who are on for a while we feel like we get to know them and of course everybody is a part of our community once they've you know been on the show uh, so we understand there's a lot of a lot of raw feelings about it, especially with Braden being so young mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, kind of everyone having this expectation that we would see him again, you know? Yeah. So if you, you know, if, if you feel so moved, you can make a donation in his memory to the Braden Smith Memorial Fund, uh, which is dedicated to furthering the educational aspirations of Southern Nevada students. Braden uh, was in Las Vegas, grew up in, I believe, Henderson, Nevada. So if you want to donate to a worthy cause, that would be one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We'll put a link in the show notes so that you can mm-hmm. access that easily if you're, uh, if you're listening to us and wanting to find that. And, uh, and we ex- you are, I think you just said this, that we extend our condolences to Braden's family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, Emily, do you have deep dive guesses? I do. You touched on the maritime disasters category, so that makes me think that maybe this is not it, but I wondered if we were talking about the Edmund Fitzgerald. We are not talking about the Edmund Fitzgerald. Okay. Uh, it was an option. It oh. crossed my mind. All right. Are we talking about Joseph Lister? Of course we are, because you will. I will just expect you to get it every time. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Unbelievable. Uh, no, totally believable, because every 
freaking time. Yes, we're it's talking about Joseph Foster. It's very gratifying to get these guesses right. Yeah, I'm, sh- I'm sure it is. All right. All right. Well, 10 points to Emily. All right. Yes, we are talking about Joseph Lister. Uh, This was from Thursday's game, the STEM category in the double jeopardy round or $2,000 clue. It was a triple stumper. The clue is, it seems obvious now that a sterile environment is necessary in an operating room, but this British surgeon faced opposition for promoting antiseptic methods. Fortunately, his methods got results and were embraced during his lifetime. That's Dr. Joseph Lister. So... I'm going to give, you know, some basically a biography about him. Uh, His life, from what I can tell, was not filled with intrigue, not particularly dramatic. Uh, You know, his his work was the big, like, notable point of fame for him, Uh, which, you know, is kind of refreshing, honestly, to not be like. And also he did all these terrible things and there was scandal and lots of tragedy and all that. It was like. He grew up and he did some work and it was good work and it was important and there we are. So, this is Joseph Lister. First Baron Lister. He lived from April 5th, 1827 to February 10th, 1912. So actually we just passed the 99th anniversary of his death. Hmm. He was a surgeon, uh, primarily, and... He was also a researcher as well. Uh, his abilities as a surgeon were good, uh, but not like great. But his, you know, he's especially known for introducing uh, sterilization techniques and uh, uh, furthering like the modernization of medicine into the modern age. He was born to a prosperous Quaker family in the village of Upton, West Ham, in Essex. He's the second son of six siblings. And his father was a scientist, a gentleman scientist, and a port wine merchant named Hmm. Joseph Jackson Lister. Uh, His mother was Isabella, and she was the daughter of Master Mariner Anthony Harris. His father was a pioneer in design of the achromatic object lens for use in compound microscopes, and he spent 30 years perfecting the microscope, and in the process discovered the law of aplanatic foci. Uh, which meant he was able to build a microscope where the image point of one lens coincided with the focal point of another. Up to that point, the best high magnification lenses produced an excessive secondary aberration known as a coma, which got in the way of normal use. And on that reputation, he was elected to the Royal Society in 1832. So Lister comes from a household that valued science. Also a strictly Quaker home, which will be a bit of an issue throughout his young life. So young Joseph Lister attended Benjamin Abbott's Isaac Brown Academy, which was a private Quaker school in Hertfordshire. Uh, when he was older, he attended the Grove House School in Tottenham, or which was also a private Quaker school. And he studied math, natural science, language. His father insisted that he have a good grounding in French and German uh, in the knowledge that he would learn Latin. And from an early age, Lister became interested in natural history, and that led to dissections of small animals and fish that uh, were examined using his father's microscope. Uh, and then he would draw those dissections as his father had taught him. It would seem that this young interest basically paved the way for him to become a surgeon. He left school in the spring of 1844 when he was 17. Uh, he was unable to attend Oxford or Cambridge, Because at the time, they had religious tests uh, requiring students to essentially join the Church of England. And so he decided to attend the non-sectarian UCL Medical School, 
which was one of the only a few institutions that would accept Quakers at that time. Initially, he studied arts, graduating with a Bachelor of Arts degree with honors in classics and botany in 1847. While he was studying, though, he suffered from a bout of smallpox, and a year later, his older brother died of the disease. He ended up having a nervous breakdown after that and decided to take a long holiday in Ireland to recuperate, and uh, this delayed the start of his medical studies at university. However, in October 1848, he did register as a medical student, and during his studies, he was active in the University Debating Society as well as the Hospital Medical Society. Uh, he studied with a number of like notable surgeons and physicians in England, but the names Wharton Jones and William Sharpie uh, seem to have the greatest influence on him. As part of his studies, Lister trained as an intern and then a house physician to Walter Hale Walsh and then house surgeon to John Eric Erickson. You don't really need to worry about them. They're just well-known surgeons. If we were really getting into, like, you know, the surgeons of Great Britain, then they would be important. But they're just, they're the people who taught him. He graduated with honors uh, with a Bachelor of Medicine in 1852, wrote his first paper in 1853, called Observations on the Contractile Tissue of the Iris, which was an advancement of the work of a, um, a Swiss anatomist named Albert von Kolliker, who, uh, and it did, yeah, and it demonstrated the existence of two distinct muscles, the dilator and sphincter of the iris, hmm. which is in the eye, for anyone who yep. doesn't know that. It was published in the Quarterly Journal of Microscopical Medicine, or Microscopical Science, uh, and more than 30 of his early school papers are still preserved. That same year, he passed the examination for fellowship of the Royal College of Surgeons, uh, kind of officially ending his years of education. At that point, one of his teachers, William Sharpie, who I mentioned before, advised Lister to spend a month at the medical practice of James Sim in Edinburgh, and then visit uh, other medical schools in Europe for a longer period to, you know, to learn and, and gain perspective. However, Lister was anxious about his first appointment and decided to settle in Edinburgh for some time after meeting Sim. Uh, so he moved to Edinburgh in September of 1853 to work as an assistant to James Sim at the University of Edinburgh and the Edinburgh Royal Infirmary. Sim invited Lister to his home, uh, Millibank, which was in Morningside. Uh, now that's part of Astley Ainsley Hospital, where he met Agnes Sim, who was Sim's daughter by another marriage. And Lister, in his statements, he says that he... Did not find her conventionally pretty, but he did admire her quickness of mind, her familiarity with medical practice, and her warmth. Uh, Lister became a frequent visitor to Millibank and met a number of eminent people in the medical field through his connection to Sim. Uh, in October of 1853, he decided to spend the winter in Edinburgh rather than travel, and Sim was impressed by Lister so that uh, by the end of the year, Sim named him supernumerary house surgeon in the Royal Infirmary and his personal assistant in the private hospital there as well. Uh, he assisted Sim in every operation and took notes. It was a much coveted position and it gave Lister extraordinary discretion to decide what of the ordinary cases he could operate on. In October of 1855, Lister was appointed a lecturer after the death of uh, another fellow surgeon named uh, Richard James Mackenzie. Mackenzie was a noted infirmary surgeon and lecturer at Edinburgh Extramural School, but he had contracted cholera 
while on a four-month volunteer shift as a field surgeon with the 79th Highlanders in the Crimean War. It had been assumed that Mackenzie was would eventually take Sim's position, and so with Mackenzie uh, dying, Lister kind of stepped into that role. And so he, like, kind of permanently settled himself in Edinburgh and rented a lecture room at high school yards. In April of 1855, he was elected a fellow of the Royal College of Surgeons of Edinburgh, and that kind of, like, really established him there. He gave his first lecture in November 1855 on the principles and practice of surgery. He originally gave lectures based on notes, uh, but eventually he, he got to the point where he just lectured off the top of his head. So during that time, when a Quaker married a person of another denomination, they considered it marrying out of the society. So he had fallen for Sim's daughter, and uh, he sent a letter to his parents informing them of his intentions. So he uh, left the Quakers and joined St. Paul's Episcopal Church in Jeffrey Street, Edinburgh. On 23rd of April, 1856, uh, Joseph Lister and Agnes Sim got married in the drawing room of Millibank. And only the Sim family was present. On their honeymoon, they had the most romantic honeymoon. They spent a month at Upton and the Lake District, which actually sounds pretty great and then spent several months on a tour of the leading medical institutes in France, Germany, Switzerland, and Italy, returning in October of 1856. As as much as that may sound like a work trip, it was, but Agnes was also super interested in medical research, and she became his partner in the lab for the rest of their life mm -hmm. together. And so when they returned, they got a house in Edinburgh. At this time, during during Lister's early career and like, the rest of his career, really. Uh, this was the beginning of the acceptance of germ theory, right? Germ theory is what we still understand, uh, the germ theory of disease, which is to say microorganisms, living things, getting into a body and doing things is what causes disease. Bacterial infection, viral infection, that kind of thing. Before that, they just didn't think that. They didn't believe that. They didn't, it, wasn't a, it wasn't a concern. There wasn't an idea that that could happen. And so sterilization was not a concern. Mm -hmm. You know, cleanliness didn't matter. Like, they didn't wash hands. They didn't clean materials. A surgeon was not required to wash his hands before seeing a patient. They didn't consider it necessary unless there was, like, an obvious infection. Then, like, they would, wipe, you know, wash off the pus and whatever. Um, right? <laughs> I seem to remember encountering, like, anecdotes that, like when hand washing first started to be introduced, like people were really like, like doctors were like offended at yeah. the idea that their hands would, you know, not yeah. be, you know, acceptable. <laughs> right. Surgeons referred to the good old surgical stink hmm. and took pride in the stains on their unwashed operating gowns as display of their experience. Good right. Lord. The bloodier you were, the better a surgeon you were. <laughs> so, but Yikes. while he was a professor of surgery at, the University of Glasgow, Lister became aware of a paper by Louis Pasteur showing that food spoilage could occur under anaerobic conditions if microorganisms were present. And Pasteur suggested three methods to eliminate microorganisms, uh, filtration, exposure to heat, or exposure to solution or chemical solutions. Lister confirmed Pasteur's conclusions with his own experiments and decided to use his findings to develop antiseptic techniques for wounds. And, of course, filtration wouldn't work because he can't put a person through a filter, and exposure to heat could be damaging, so he decided to try to figure out a, uh, a solution that could be used to clean. 
1834, a man named Friedlieb Ferdinand Runga discovered phenol, which we call carbolic acid. Lister heard about this, and uh, carbolic acid is similar to creosote, which is a substance that had been used for treating sewage. Uh, And so he had the idea of using carbolic acid to clean wounds. He tested the results of spraying instruments and surgical incisions, as well as dressings with a solution of carbolic acid, and found uh, that the incidences of gangrene was significantly reduced. And then in spring of 1865, he read about Louis Pasteur's discovery of living things causing fermentation and putrefaction, and that led him to like get further into this using he applied a piece of lint dipped in carbolic acid onto the wound of a seven-year-old boy at glasgow royal infirmary who had uh, sustained a compound fracture after a cartwheel had passed over his leg Uh, and after four days he renewed the pad and discovered that no infection had developed and after six weeks uh, he found that the boy's bones had fused back together without superation um, which is essentially without pus without an accumulation of pus. Uh, I mean, you know, not gross, but like... Yeah. Gross that that was just sort of, you know, the normal oh, thing. They, yeah, d- they used to believe that pus was a good thing. That it meant your body was healing. Ugh. Or at least a number of people did. Anyway, um, he published his, his results in The Lancet uh, in 1867. And he began instructing his surgeons to wear clean gloves, wash their hands before and after operations with carbolic acid solutions, and wash their instruments as well. He also suggested stop using porous natural materials in the manufacturing of uh, medical instruments. He left Glasgow University in 1869 uh, and returned to Edinburgh as successor to Sim as professor of surgery at the University of Edinburgh, and he continued in his work there with uh, antisepsis and asepsis. Uh, by that point, he had gained a good amount of fame for his his innovations. Uh, the germ theory of disease became more understood. His methods, his practices became more and more widespread. At that, like by that point, it was. But early on, like you mentioned, and you know, like like we talked about, uh, a lot of the ideas were scoffed or spurned. In 1869, at meetings at the meetings of the British Association at Leeds, his ideas were mocked. In 1873. The Lancet warned the entire medical profession against his progressive ideas. Uh, that would be uh. the last time The Lancet was wrong. <laughs> oh, oh, wait. <laughs> oh, you're, you're so prescient. Um, however, he had supporters at the time, and there, there were even like publishers who included his methods in newer, in like their new updated, you know, medical texts uh, during that time. The use of carbolic acid proved a bit problem- problematic, and eventually he... Uh, he himself said, no, don't use that. Use, like, better things, more, you know, as we discover more uh, solutions that can clean wounds. Don't use carbolic acid anymore because it irritates eyes. I mean, it's an acid. <laughs> and it can uh, irritate the respiratory tract uh, and can also damage, you know, like, tissue, like, you know, skin and flesh. And so because of that, a lot of people push back, like, well, you know, is it really good for you if it can make your eyes burn? Uh, I'm not going to do it. We don't know all the side effects, right? Uh, And because his ideas were based on germ theory, which at the time was very new, it did take a while to catch on. Uh, Also, he was not very eloquent in his writing or in his speaking, so sometimes his ideas did not come across clearly, and so people, you know, push back against that as well. 
1877, he moved from Edinburgh to King's College Hospital in London. He was elected president of the Clinical Society of London. Uh, He also developed a method of repairing kneecaps with metal wire and improved the technique of mastectomy while he was there. Uh, He is also known for being the first surgeon to use catgut ligatures, sutures, rubber drains, and developing uh, an aortic tourniquet. So he just kept innovating, even though, like, his major contribution was antisepsis. In 1893, four days into their spring holiday in Rapallo, Italy, Agnes Lister died from acute pneumonia. Mm. And from at that point, he retired from practice. He stopped writing as much, didn't really study as much. He suffered a stroke soon after, and uh, but he, he still came into the public light from time to time. He was made Surgeon Extraordinary to Queen Victoria and then Sergeant Surgeon to the Queen in March 1900. When she died in 1901, King Edward VII reappointed him. And in August of 1902, he came down with appendicitis two days before his scheduled coronation. And so the surgeons who attended to King Edward VII obviously like went to Lister first, and he advised them on how to properly go about doing that cleanly. The king survived and later told Lister, I know that if it had not been for you and your work, I wouldn't be sitting here today. Hmm. Uh, Lister died on the 10th of February in 1912 in his home uh, in Walmer, Kent. He had a large public funeral service at Westminster Abbey. His body is buried at Hampstead Cemetery in London. There is a marble medallion of Lister sitting alongside uh, others of Darwin, Stokes, who was a uh, physicist and mathematician, Anglo-Irish. John Couch Adams, who is also a mathematician and astronomer, and James Watt. So he is in high company there. So that's his life. He was a member of a whole bunch of uh, honorary societies, uh, like the Royal College of Surgeons, the Royal Society, the Académie des Sciences from in France, uh, in... 1883, Queen Victoria made him a baronet, and then in 1897, she raised him up to the peerage as Baron Lister, and uh, he was appointed a privy councillor in 1902, hmm. and one of the original members of the New Order of Merit. So he he was extremely highly regarded, as well he should have been. So that's, there it is, that's Joseph Lister. Aside from, you know, kind of shaking up the medical world, he led a pretty quiet life. Uh, He did good work. And surprisingly, he got credit for it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So there we go. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Are you ready for a quiz? Oh, always. This, uh, I mean, it has to do with basically what I talked about. It's basically got to do with Joseph Lister and medical history and that kind of thing. So uh, question one. The Discovery Expedition of 1901 to 1904 named the tallest peak in the Royal Society range after Joseph Lister. Where in the world is this mountain? Huh. I don't think I know of the mountain. What year did you say? 19 The Discovery Expedition was 1901 to 1904. Okay. Um, I'm going to guess New Zealand. Not a bad guess, but that would be Antarctica. Oh, 
Of course, that is much more sensible. Yeah, the the highest peak in the Royal Society range okay. is Lister Mountain or Lister Peak. All right. Well, you you still have ten points because you guessed it. Yeah. So well, you're okay. All right. Question two. That offsets my dumb guess. <laughs> well, I mean, you'll you'll feel pretty good about this one, I imagine. Question two. The Lancet is no stranger to getting things wrong. Mm. It was about 150 years ago that they warned against Lister's progressive ideas, so we could probably let that one slide at this point. However, we are still clearly dealing with the aftermath of the publication of a case study by Andrew Wakefield et al. that claimed to link what vaccine to autism. Though the paper was from 1998, and they redacted it in 2010... Uh, after overwhelming evidence to the contrary, many people still point to it as proof that vaccines are bad, okay? Uh, it's the MMR v- vaccine. It is the MMR vaccine, the measles, mumps, rubella mm-hmm. vaccine Yep. that doesn't cause autism. It does And not. in fact, what it causes is an immunity, immunity. to measles, mumps, and rubella. So Three things that can kill you. Yeah. Um, yeah. We're this. We're not gonna get into that. Yeah. No. But uh, yeah, yeah. We know. We know that the Lancet uh, did not do due diligence mm-hmm. uh, at that point. Anyway, good job. Near twenty points. Yay. Question three: Joseph Lister is one of two surgeons to have monuments in London. The other one was John Hunter, who is known for collecting specimens for examination or dissection. Uh, one particular specimen had belonged to the seven foot seven inch tall Irishman Charles Byrne. What was that specimen which still resides in the Hunterian Museum at the Royal College of Surgeons in London? All right. Um, I'm assuming this is going to be like an anatomical specimen you know like like einstein's brain kind of thing but of this very tall person um oh i bet i was i was trying to come up with a specific bone but maybe it's his skeleton i'm guessing skeleton and you'd be correct it is his skeleton yay i was like nice job femur would it be a spine like come on emily it's a skeleton no and actually this is like a major bummer uh charles byrne on his deathbed like explicitly stated no I do not want my body to go to science. I want to be buried at sea. John Hunter bribed one of the, like, funeral workers to essentially, like, switch out the body. And he just took it. And then he put it on display. And it's still on display. Mm. Uh, But, of course, British museums, we know that they're not super good on, like, putting things back where they belong. Yeah. Anyway, you got that right. Nice. Mm -hmm. Uh, You're up to 30 points? Yeah, 30 points. Question four. At this point, we know that the germ theory of disease is pretty much spot on. Earlier attempts at at explaining the cause of diseases included will of the gods, the humors system, which I believe I've asked you about before, and the theory that disease is caused by bad air emanating from rotting organic matter. What is the word used that means bad air. Oh, I know this one. It's miasma. It is miasma. Now, normally miasma means I can't get enough air. 
but uh yeah yeah the the miasma theory was that it was bad air that caused things and so like before sanitation you know in it like an operating room or a hospital they just like open all the windows and doors and just air it out so the bad air can leave right and make sure you get good air in and of course that fixed fixed everything ventilation it turns out is important but sure not like that (laughs) yeah it's not a cure not for that (laughs) yeah uh nice good job you're at 40 points question five speaking of old medical thought much of the medical practice during the medieval era was based on the work natural history or naturalis historia by what ancient roman naturalist philosopher and military commander he died in 79 year 79 while trying to save a friend from the eruption of mount vesuvius but was survived by his younger nephew who achieved fame as an imperial magistrate uh okay is it is it like Pliny the Elder Plin- that one it is Pliny the Elder yay I was nice. like nice yes English yeah again I'm gonna I'm gonna plug another podcast which I have done before Sawbones great medical history podcast oh yeah yeah, yeah. I can't uh, wait to listen they, to that more they I talk think. about Pliny the Elder in pretty much every episode because he wrote about literally everything and he was like at this point we know he was like completely wrong about literally everything but he wrote about like every possible medical condition in in natural history there is something in natural history for like basically everything yeah and it's all stuff like you know uh burn the dung of a bowl and mix it with honey and then (laughs) and then make a poultice and put it on the wound and make sure that moonlight gets on it or whatever uh but he had something for everything. So. Yeah. That's All right, nice. You're at 50 points. All right. And the final category is... I'll just say medical patents. Medical patents. I have 50 points. I feel like I need to go all in. I'll, I'll, I'll wager 50. That's probably a good call. Here you go. In 1876, Joseph Lister publicly recognized the work of two men endeavoring to modernize surgical practices, Dr. Joseph Lawrence and Robert Wood Johnson, who later founded a family company. Three years after that, Dr. Lawrence patented a solution for antiseptic use in surgeries and bathing wounds. What did he call that solution? A name that persists to this day. Oh. And I can give you a clue if you need it. feel like i could almost get there but i can't quite uh, give me the clue uh he named it in honor of the man who started it all oh are we talking about listerine we are talking about listerine well done yeah from 1879 dr joseph lawrence invented listerine uh, it wasn't until the 1890s that they figured out that it could like be really worked well for like oral hy- health and oral hygiene, and dentists started becoming interested in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but yes, that's why Listerine is Listerine. It's nice. After- until until you said the the name part, I was trying to recall the name of. Uh, I just googled it now to to get the name Beta Dean or Beta Dine. That one, mm, um, mm, that mm, brown mm. one. Um, yeah. 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 Huh. Listerine. There we go. I that is not now, what I would want on my wounds. 
No, I, I mean now. I mean, obviously, now it's totally different. Like, yeah, it's a it's a different. You know, it's a it's a mouthwash company. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, absolutely. But, but I mean, it is technically an antiseptic. So, well, look at that. You got a hundred points. Yay! Congratulations. Thank you. That was a yeah. very fun quiz. Good. I am glad. Yeah. Well, thank you for a great deep dive and for potting with me, Kyle. Absolutely. And thank you, listeners, for spending your time with us. We really appreciate it. Uh, we love sharing Jeopardy with you. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a rating or review if you wouldn't mind. We love those reviews and uh, the the ratings really help us in the algorithms. If you want to check out our Patreon, it's there for you at patreon.com slash potentpotables. And even if that's not of interest to you, you can tell your friends about our podcast, especially if they're Jeopardy fans. That's right. Uh, you all can find us on Facebook at Potent Potables, on Twitter at Potent Potables 1. Our email address is potentpotablescast at gmail.com. And our website is potentpod.com. We'll be back with you next week for another week of Jeopardy. And until then, may your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker.